0: For a status, I am Maliheh Razazan. This week, we bring you the first part of our conversation with Professor Ziad Abu Rish about the recent mass protest movement in Lebanon and the country's worsening economic crisis. Do stay with us. Lebanon is facing its worst economic crisis in decades. The crisis has resulted in dwindling foreign currency reserves and double-digit inflation. On March 9th, the Lebanese government defaulted on $1.2 billion of euro bonds that were due on that day and declared that it would prioritize spending foreign currency reserves on the import of essential goods over debt payments. It is the first default for one of the world's most heavily indebted countries with a massive debt burden of more than $90 billion, equivalent to nearly 170% of the country's gross domestic product. The ongoing economic crisis also sparked a widespread political unrest in October of last year. To understand the worsening economic conditions and the historic protest movement in Lebanon, Shahram Agamir spoke with Ziad Rish, is an assistant professor of Middle East history and founding director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies Program at Ohio University. He is also a co-editor of Jadalia Izin and currently a research fellow at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies in Beirut. Professor Rish began by discussing the main characteristics of the Lebanese economy and the origins of the current crisis.
1: What we have in Lebanon today and have had for some time is a set of overlapping crises related to the economy. On the one hand, we have a fiscal crisis where the state budget has been running an annual deficit and is simply unable to maintain expenditures at its current revenue levels. And this has been a heated subject of debate that we might be able to go into in detail later. We also have a foreign currency crisis in Lebanon, where there is a shortage of foreign currency, particularly dollars, which is very important given that Lebanon for several decades has been a dual currency economy in which you could use dollars, U.S. dollars in particular, and Lebanese liras interchangeable. And I believe these are the two crises that have received the largest amount of media attention recently. But I think it's also important to understand their intersections with two other crises. The first is a broader developmental crisis where the Lebanese economy has experienced sluggish growth rates the last several years, uh, where there is a major trade imbalance between imports and exports, and in which the productive sectors of Lebanon, namely manufacturing and agriculture, have played a backseat role to the less productive sector of the service economy. And finally, we have to talk about, of course, the infrastructural crises. Lebanon currently features Uh, dilapidated and decaying infrastructure related to public utilities such as electricity, water, and telephone service, but also in terms of waste management. And we can think of all of these crises primarily as a function of an economic development model that privileged the service sector that privileged the private sector, and that privileged wealth generation among a very small percentage of the population at the expense of the majority of population living in Lebanon, which continues to experience rising levels of unemployment, rising levels of poverty, and decreasing levels of purchasing power. And one of the key things to keep in mind when thinking about these overlapping crises is that they are largely occurring in the dual context of the decades-long post-war reconstruction projects and programs of Lebanon after it exited from its 15-year civil war, combined with adopting the types of policies that we have come to identify as neoliberal policies. And I think it's really important to also zoom in on the everyday manifestations of these crises. People are finding it harder and harder to make ends meet each day. It's a country that manufactures very little, but imports quite a bit. And so when you have a foreign currency shortage, you have the prices of imports rising, there are current serious constraints on people's abilities to secure uh, medical supplies, food at an affordable level. There are fuel shortages because of the inability of the country to import fuel at the levels needed given its foreign currency crisis. So I think it's really important that we not just use these kind of grand uh, labels of fiscal crisis, foreign currency crisis, developmental crisis, and infrastructural crises, but to really think about how the daily grind of getting by for the majority of the population in Lebanon, whether Lebanese citizens, domestic migrant workers refugee populations, or others has become extremely more difficult as time has gone by.
2: Prior to the default, the Lebanese government had been consulting with the International Monetary Fund, signaling that it would seek a bailout if all political factions could reach a consensus. Since such a deal would have meant a debt restructuring and a devaluation of Lebanese currency and austerity measures. Would it be reasonable to say that the government's decision to default is actually intended to appease the population and prevent the resurgence of anti-austerity mass protests?
1: I think that's a great question and many of us are still trying to understand some of the decision making processes that went into the announcement that Lebanon would default on its uh, March 2020 maturities of euro bonds. I think there is a little doubt that the mass protests and the organizing and activism and public debate amongst activists and the public more generally about the types of priorities that have been in place previously and that need to be fundamentally questioned and changed added significant pressure to this new government to default, especially at a time when foreign currency reserves are in very limited supply and there are concerns about the ability of uh, Lebanon to import necessary fuel, medical supplies, medicines, and even food. So, I do think that there is a degree to which the government understood that not defaulting on this uh, Eurobond maturity in March would have angered and stoked the flames of protests once again in Lebanon. However, I also think that it's important to recognize that defaulting by the government is. Also, in its interest at this point with regards to its negotiating position with the International Monetary Fund, and this is perhaps something we could talk about a little bit more later on, by defaulting, the Lebanese government has signaled to the international community and to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and major powers around the world that it is in dire need. Of new sources of revenue in the forms of loans and grants, something the country has been extremely dependent on since the end of the Civil War, but something that has significantly dried up in the last several years, which is in part a piece of the puzzle related to the culmination in the current overlapping crises that we see.
2: Tell us more about this strategy pursued by the Lebanese government. Do you think we are en route to another Argentina, what Argentina did in terms of defaulting on its loans?
1: It's not clear to me, and I think it's not clear to most critical analysts of Lebanon that the decision to default is part of any overall plan to help restructure the economy, let alone the debt burden in Lebanon. So while the government has made the decision to default on the March maturities, It has not made any statements about what it plans to do with other maturities in the future, nor has it actually indicated a willingness and a plan to fundamentally rethink the type of economic development model that has been underway in Lebanon, including whether it plans to take the banking sector head on with regards to its conduct with the deposits of many people in Lebanon, Lebanese and non Lebanese together. So I think that's perhaps for me the most indicative part that uh, we should be concerned about the future economically. Now, whether it moves into an Argentina situation a Greece situation, a Cyprus situation, I think that is going to depend on the strategy of the government, which is not clear to us yet. It's going to depend on the ability of activists and protesters to shape public debate and to pressure the government. And it's going to depend on external powers and financiers and how they think they can engage with what's happening. In Lebanon. So I think it's a little early to say, but all indications are that this is a significant decision. And as you pointed out, this is the first time in Lebanon's history that it defaults on such loans. And we should point out, Shahram, that Eurobonds represent the overwhelming majority of the type of foreign public debt in lebanon as opposed to multilateral or bilateral debt that many other economies feature so while we're not clear on what the strategy is there is no doubt that this was a significant decision
2: does the government have any uh, leverage with respect to the political stability of the country And the question over the stability of the country when it tries to negotiate with these foreign actors in terms of financing its loans and getting credits and loans.
1: Absolutely. I think that there is no doubt that The set of grievances that have been circulating and voiced by different sectors of the populations in Lebanon have included the various economic crises that are related to the dwindling of revenue flows into the country. But I think this is a government strategy in its attempt to kind of reshape the demands as being exclusively about the current economic crisis rather than fundamentally about the nature of the political economy of Lebanon, which includes the ruling political parties, their relationship to the economic crises. And so what we see happening is that the current government is trying to signal, I believe, to the outside world and to potential lenders and sources of foreign aid that should uh, funds be forthcoming, not only would it be able to uphold its promises with regards to foreign debt, but that it would also be able to somehow deliver on the political stability that has been lacking in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that is a faulty assumption because the protest movements that erupted around mid-October have been about the fundamental nature of both political and economic power in Lebanon. And as I said, nothing in the public statements of the new government in Lebanon indicate any rethinking of the economy or any rethinking, frankly, of the political system.
2: Let's talk about the mass protests that erupted in October 2019 and shook Lebanon for months They emerged in the wake of uh, massive wildfires in several areas in the country that exposed the inability of the Lebanese state to cope with the impact of the climate crisis. And they occurred following a government decision to impose taxes on fuel, tobacco, and online calling applications or apps. Can you talk about these triggers and, more importantly, the socioeconomic grievances and the roots of the discontent
1: Absolutely. And I think the examples you give of the wildfires and the attempted uh, imposition of new types of taxes or raising uh, existing taxes speaks to the kind of multiple crises. The massive wildfires and the inability of the Lebanese government to deal with them is a direct result of the type of infrastructural crises that is ongoing in Lebanon. As you know, or you might not know, one of the main reasons the Lebanese government was unable to properly respond to the wildfires is that helicopters that should have been used in helping put out the wildfires uh, had not been given proper maintenance despite uh, Lebanon purchasing them in recent years. And so they sat there idly while people's homes and properties burned and local neighborhoods were displaced. Similarly, with regards to the decision to impose higher taxes on fuel and tobacco, Echo and online calling apps, as you can see, these are types of consumption taxes. These are what we call indirect taxes that are going to unfairly burden the average income generator in Lebanon as opposed to some kind of meaningful. Uh, income tax system, which is completely lacking in Lebanon
2: the um, regressive taxes.
1: Yes, they're indirect taxes But even if we look at the income tax system in Lebanon, that's a regressive income tax So we have yes. to think of both the regressive income tax and the fact that Lebanon primarily relies on indirect taxes so in all this discussion about the fiscal crisis and the need to generate more revenues You know, the government started contemplating taxing uh, online calling apps, especially the WhatsApp application, which is why some people incorrectly called this the WhatsApp revolution. Now, the issue of the WhatsApp tax, as as it commonly came to be called, was certainly a trigger. It was the kind of a straw that broke the camel's back. But if we look at the last several years in Lebanon, we could see that there were a series of different types of protests addressing the kind of infrastructural Fiscal foreign currency and developmental crises whether it was the form of labor mobilizations whether it was in the form of uh, Gas station owners and employees going on strike for their inability to import fuel whether it was the garbage protests of 2015 so I think it's really important to realize that uh, Lebanon reached a breaking point and that the protests that emerged were initially quite spontaneous they brought together people of various socioeconomic classes. And in fact, I would say that initially the protests were far more uh, comprised of members of the popular classes than they were of, say, the middle class and classes beyond that.
2: Fast forward from October 2019 to today, how would you assess the protest movement today in terms of its strength and its tactics?
1: Well, I mean, I would just say that there are ongoing protests in Lebanon. But we cannot claim that they are at the level in terms of numbers and geographic span that we witnessed in October, November, December, and maybe even parts of January. I think there is no doubt that there are far fewer people taking to the streets today than there were in October, November, December, and maybe even January. Of course, uh, March 8th, International Women's Day, was a day that various groups coalesced around to try and turn out and reclaim the streets in a much more forceful way. But due to concerns about the Corona 2019 virus, many activist groups decided to postpone the protests and not take uh, you know, people's health by gathering in such large numbers, although people did turn out into the streets nevertheless. So we just don't know what that would have looked like had the concerns around the corona epidemic not been in place. So I think to start with, we can say that the protests are far smaller and maybe less geographically diffuse than they were in the early months and that we have far less direct uh, actions going on in terms of street closures and these types of activities that we saw again in the early months than we do now that being said there have been a number of groups that have coalesced created themselves become more institutionalized and have really carried the grievances forward Um, Around very particular issues, whether it's professional associations, whether it's the banking sector or, or other matters. So I think it's fair to say that the protests continue, but we can't speak of the mass protests anymore for now that we were able to speak of the first several months.
2: But we can't talk about a protest movement, right? I mean, it's something continuous. You can trace it back to October. These are not events that are random.
1: Absolutely. I don't think it would be acceptable analytically nor ethically for that matter, to think of the Lebanese uprising as a very discreet uh, event in time that we can say is now over. We can talk about the shifting balance of power between the regime in Lebanon and the protesters. We can talk about the changing landscapes of tactics. We could talk about the differential numbers of people turning out and why that might be the case. But the protest movement is certainly ongoing and the evidence of that is quite clearly the most recent decision to default on the March maturities for Eurobonds. I mean, that is a direct result of protests that have happened and that are in many ways ongoing.
2: There has been a wide spectrum of slogans chanted by the protesters, and the protests appear to be targeting a range of issues from austerity to the country's sectarian political system what can you tell us about those slogans and can we confidently say what the protesters key demands have been
1: absolutely i think perhaps the slogan that best captured the spirit uh, and the demands of the different groups was all of them means all of them which in arabic was chanted as in the lebanese dialect and what they meant by that is All of the political parties, all of the members of the political class in Lebanon are a problem and they need to go. Now, in terms of concrete demands, I think early on we can say that they definitely coalesced in agreement around the need for the resignation of Saad al Hariri and his cabinet and the desire for a new independent cabinet to be formed, to carry out a set of reforms that would lead the country out of its political and economic crises. Now, if we want to get into more specific demands, there is where we might see certain differences between different groups. So, for example, there were a significant number of groups and this demand did become popularized to a certain extent that people were calling for an end to the sectarian system. And by an end to the sectarian system, they meant both the allotment of political office on the basis of sectarian affiliation whether it's parliamentary seats, whether it's the fact that the president uh, has to be a member of the Maronite sect and the prime minister has to be a member of the Sunni sect and the speaker of parliament has to be a member of the Shia sect and so on and so forth, or the other manifestation of the sectarian system, which is the personal status system in which sectarian personal status courts are able to adjudicate matters of marriage, divorce, inheritance, Uh, child custody, uh, and so on and so forth, on the basis of their religious laws. Other groups had introduced grievances related to the treatment of non-Lebanese, whether they were domestic migrant workers or refugees, sometimes framed in terms of the rights of non-citizens in Lebanon, and other times framed as an anti-racist campaign. This was a big part of the demands of different feminist activists and groups and LGBTQ activists in Lebanon. And so, of course, we saw the demand for the empowerment and the implementation of genuine equality between men and women and the need to reform the penal system and other aspects that criminalize or demonize non-heterosexual identifying individuals in Lebanon. So you can see the the huge gamut of demands. And depending on where you were looking at and who you were talking to, you could have heard any combination of these demands. But I think while some differences did exist, the reality is that the mass protests created a space and an umbrella under which all of those demands could be contained and in which they coalesced around the idea that the current status quo in Lebanon, both the political status quo and the economic status quo, in terms of who's in power, who makes decisions, who has privileges, who has rights, and who does not, had to be fundamentally upended. And Mm. in that sense, They were in agreement on that front. But of course, the challenge of all protest movements and activist groups when working in coalition, whether formal coalition or informal coalition is, well, what does that actually look like on the ground? And how would we prioritize that listing?
2: On the part of the ruling bloc, they were arguing that it's not clear what the demands of these protesters are. They don't have defined demands. They don't have defined program. So it's very difficult to meet those demands.
1: I think the claim by members of the political class that it's difficult to deliver on the demands of the protesters, either because there's no clear leadership to negotiate with or the demands are so diffuse that we're not really clear what the demands are, are basically stalling tactics and a strategy to avoid responsibility. I think the demands were fundamentally clear people wanted an end to corruption, people wanted political accountability and transparency, and people wanted uh, socioeconomic justice. And almost every aspect of the Lebanese state's policies since the end of the Civil War, this is without even talking about before the Civil War, have been attempts to prioritize and privilege a small segment of the population at the expense of the larger segment of the population. So I think that's really important to put out up front. Many of the demands that have been voiced are not demands that came out of nowhere, they are part of ongoing mobilizations and campaigns by different communities, by different activist groups and by different institutions in Lebanon, whether we're talking about an end to the personal status system, an end to the confessional system, whether we're talking about the ability of Lebanese women to pass on citizenship uh, to their children when married to non-Lebanese, or for that matter, when not married at all, the ability of domestic migrant workers to have a fundamental decency and human rights protected rather than the current kafala system. The problem wasn't that we didn't know what the demands were or that people in government didn't know what the demands were. The problem were that those demands, whichever ones you looked at, struck at the heart of the privilege and power of those people in government. And they were unwilling to accept those demands and see to them unless forced to do so, such as the case of the resignation of Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri and his cabinet, such as the decision to default on the March maturities of the euro bonds. And we could talk about a few other cases for that matter.
2: Just to be clear, when you're talking about the sectarian political structures, we are referring to Lebanon's French colonial legacy and the system that was put in place in the post-colonial period. It was a confessional system. And there was a sectarian political structure that was essentially entrenched following the 1975-1990 Civil War.
1: I'm talking about, on the one hand, the fact that parliamentary seats and other uh, political offices are divided up along sectarian quotas. And you are right that this was introduced during the French colonial period between 1920 and 1943, but it was very much accepted and carried on and perpetuated by the political elite that inherited the state after independence, as well as the political elite that overthrew the post-independence elite during the Civil War and presided over the post-war transition from 1990 until today in 2020. We are also talking about the fact that The office of the president has traditionally been allocated to a member of the Maronite sect and the office of the prime minister to a member of the Sunni sect and the office of speaker of parliament to a member of the Shia sect. Now, I should be clear that some of these arrangements are actually consecrated in the constitution and other laws within the Lebanese legal system. But other practices, such as the fact that the president has to be a Maronite, are more uh, common practice than they are law. There is nothing in any legal document that states that the president has to be a Maronite. So just to show you the degree to which these practices are institutionalized and reproduced by the political elite, that we can reach a level where People talk about every aspect of the sectarian political system as if it's all part of the legal architecture of the Lebanese state. And while a significant part of the legal architecture of the Lebanese state helps produce the political sectarian system, there are simply other repertoires and practices that are reproduced independent of legal claims that are also perpetuating the system.
0: That is Professor Ziad Abu Rish speaking with Shahram Aghamir about the root causes of the economic crisis in Lebanon and the historic protest movement in that country. We'll hear more after a break. For a status, I am Malih Razazan.
2: these protests were massive. For instance, it has been reported that nearly 2 million protesters took to the streets in the largest nationwide demonstrations on October 20th. Many scholars, analysts, and activists have argued that the protests were nationwide, and they crossed sectarian, regional, and class divides in a way that was unprecedented in Lebanon's recent history.
1: I think the characteristics you described are really important. The protest movements that erupted in October 17th and onward with, of course, October 20th being one of the largest gatherings featured cross-sectarian protesters, featured the emergence of protests, not just in Beirut and Tripoli and other major cities, but also smaller cities and towns around the country that have not necessarily been on the radar of analysts or necessarily the political imagination of people in other parts of the country in Lebanon as being part of an opposition or a rejection of the status quo. And I think it's also important to recognize that you did have have a certain degree of cross-class mobilization where you had people of the professional classes, university students, but also working class people taking to the streets initially. And this is unprecedented when we talk about the scale. At which it was carried out. For example, you know, you talk about the October 20th protest of an estimated 2 million people out into the streets. It's not the first time in history that Lebanon features cross sectarian, cross regional, cross class protests. There are previous instances of this, both historically and since the end of the Civil War, but not at the scale in terms of numbers and geographic dispersion that we saw since October 17th, and certainly not for that many consecutive days. And I think this is really important. And what makes it so significant is that it represented a fundamental challenge to the political status quo and to the sectarian political parties that very quickly tried to recast the protest movement or segments of it as being a zero-sum game between different sectarian communities, as being an attempt by one sectarian political party to gain traction at the expense of the other. But the protest organizers and participants demonstrated an incredible amount of resolve that it basically rendered the sectarian card that had been played so many times previously, whether in 2015 during the garbage crisis, whether in 2011 during the mobilizations demanding the fall of the sectarian system, or even prior to 2011, that card was quite effective. But what we saw in Lebanon in October, November, December, January, and even today, right, in Lebanon, The sectarian card is unable to do what it has done previously for the political elite. And that speaks to the strength of the protest movement and the activists and organizers at its heart.
2: Two million protesters compared to the entire population of Lebanon is a remarkable figure.
1: The estimated population of Lebanon, I believe, is approximately six million. So when you say two million people were out in the streets, you're basically saying that one out of every three people was out on the streets protesting. I want you to imagine if one out of every three people in the office or one out of every three people in the class or one out of every three people in the home or the gym or the supermarket were a protester ratio, when you think about it in those terms. That would mean
2: more Uh, than 100 million people in the United States would be pouring into streets
1: proportionally, we can say that the type of protests we've seen in Lebanon, the United States has never seen, if we want to talk proportionally. And that is no easy feat in a country that experiences incredible class divides, incredible geographic divides, incredible political divides, that are produced and reproduced by the political class, but nevertheless have an important effect. And yet, despite all of that, we saw what we saw in October, November, December, January and onwards. So it's quite remarkable.
2: This upheaval against this sectarian political structure, obviously, it resembles what has been happening in Iraq, almost at the same time. You did talk a little bit about the makeup of the protesters. Which classes and social groups have been participating in the walkouts, rallies, marchers, and different forms of civil disobedience in Lebanon protests?
1: I think it's important to recognize that people from most walks of life have at one time or another participated in the protests in Lebanon since October 17th. It's difficult to actually identify all the social groups Because in some ways, some social groups identified themselves as such. So for example, university professors, university students, high school students, members of certain professional groups such as lawyers, engineers, doctors, nurses, and so on and so forth, have self-identified collectively when joining the protests. You don't have a group coming out and saying, here's the working class, we've shown up and that has made it difficult to ascertain what has been the role of the popular classes in the protests in Lebanon. But I think it's also important to realize that the social composition of protests in Lebanon have shifted, whereas I think most people would agree that the initial impetus on October 17th to take to the streets was largely driven by members of the popular classes members of the classes that were going to be most affected and devastated by the imposition of the so-called WhatsApp tax, for whom the dilapidated and inaccessible communication infrastructure in Lebanon, adding a WhatsApp tax would have increased the burden tremendously for them to be able to maintain the types of social communities and networking that they do maintain.
2: You're talking about the working class urban poor and lower middle class.
1: Yes. But as the protests continued, we saw a shift, at least in the groups of people that were able to garner media attention. And those groups tended to be more of the middle class and social groups approximating the middle class. But we also have to acknowledge that when banks closed for several days, when schools closed for several days, when universities closed for several days, when banks closed, when certain roads and neighborhoods were closed, it made it more possible for those peoples whose daily routines were, were most stopped to be able to participate, like students, for example. But in other cases, the cost of participating in the protest remained high for people who were members of, say, the working class that still had to report to work the next day. And I think this brings up the issue of the absence of formally organized labor groups and unions from the protest movement in Lebanon, which is not a reflection of members of the Lebanese working class being content with the political or economic status quo, but with the intentional policies to demobilize and co-opt formal organized labor associations and unions in Lebanon, in particular since the end of the Lebanese Civil War in 1990. I would say that formally recognized and legally operating labor unions and professional associations in Lebanon have largely been co-opted or internally paralyzed by disagreement or discord, and that this was an intentional policy of the Lebanese government since 1990. Because remember, a big part of the post-war reconstruction and development program in Lebanon was the privatization of large sectors of the economy, the unraveling of what few state commitments existed to social safety nets and that implementing such uh, policies really required breaking the back of organized labor, which for quite some time in the civil war maintained an important progressive role in maintaining or enhancing their income or social safety net when possible. And this is why today, one of the outcomes or one of the arenas in which the uprising in Lebanon has manifested has actually been in struggles to reclaim various professional associations and in struggles to reclaim certain labor unions. So, for example, prior to the uprising, there was the election in the Beirut Bar Association or the lawyer syndicates in which a progressive independent candidate won and currently, there is a huge struggle raging in the order of engineers in Lebanon uh, by independents and progressives to reclaim that professional association. We've seen that journalists have become quite frustrated, either resigning or being fired for the kind of critical coverage they were providing for the protesters and are now calling for the creation of an independent a journalist syndicates because the organized and officially recognized journalist syndicate did not come out with a single statement to criticize the attacks on media personnel by police in Lebanon, yet came out to condemn the protesters attacking the infrastructures of the banking sector, just to show you. The kind of co-optation that's at play in Lebanon with regards to professional associations when the leading and the only journalist syndicate does not make a single statement in defense of the multiple journalists and camera persons that were attacked or arrested or otherwise harassed but yet comes out to the defense of banks and the banking sector.
2: Since you mentioned that, would you like to say more about what you think of the media coverage during the protest in Lebanon?
1: Well, I think the existing media infrastructure in Lebanon, initial stage of the protest was quite reticent to provide adequate coverage. Uh, With a few exceptions. And here we're talking about television stations, of course. But as the protests grew and it became simply common sense that there is a protest, it's legitimate, and that the uh, political elites are the illegitimate ones, we started to see more coverage given to them. But of course, there were attempts by newspapers and uh, television stations controlled by different political groups to attempt to misrepresent the protests, to demonize the protests, or to justify the violence against protesters, which is part of the larger set of forces that have led a number of journalists to either be fired or resign from their positions and to start calling for the formation of more independent groups. And institutions related to the media. Now, while we have not seen this really happen at the level of television stations, we know, for example, that there was an attempt to create a monthly or or bi-monthly uh, newspaper called October Seventeenth, which is the date of the start of the revolution in Lebanon. We know that there is a new uh, long-form investigative journalism website called The Public Source that publishes its articles in English and Arabic and has actually created a platform to encourage people to leak information from the centers of political and economic power in the country. We saw other social media and internet groups come together to help share information about what was happening in the protests. So On the one hand, the existing media landscape has remained the same in terms of those groups that were pre-existing to the uprising. On the other hand, we see that new institutions and new uh, connections and networks have come together to create some really impressive constellations of knowledge producers and journalists in Lebanon.
2: I just realized you used the word revolution. What are your thoughts on this notion that what started in Lebanon in October can be characterized as October revolution, as opposed to a movement with a reformist agenda?
1: Well, you know, I mean, that question has a lot of layers to it. First of all, do we call it a revolution? Do we call it an uprising? Do we call it a protest movement? And then, you know, what are the politics and the accuracies of using the term October revolution, which, of course, is not a neutral or naive term, it's quite a deliberate term if we think of the October Revolution of 1917. So, you know, I, to be honest, was less interested in debating people about whether this is a revolution or not. I believe that many people who participated believed it was a revolution. I believe many people experienced it as a revolution, personally for them and for their kind of networks. I think it was transformative in significant ways. And let's be clear, the generalized major demand was the overthrow of the political system, which Mm. is a revolutionary demand. So on those levels, I think it's very hard to not take seriously the self-ascription that it is a revolution. Now, how successful was it? Did the term revolution alienate some people? We could talk about those things, but we should also make a point that there is no denying that there certainly was a counter-revolution to the mass uprising in in Lebanon, which might also allow us to think of it more seriously as a a revolution.
2: What about the two million Palestinian and Syrian refugees, as well as guest workers who live in Lebanon? What do we know about their participation in the protest movement?
1: Well, as you point out, that's quite a significant number of non-Lebanese, so to speak, that reside in Lebanon. Some of them who've lived there for decades and are multiple generations of families that have, have lived in Lebanon. There is no doubt that they are equally marginalized, if not more in certain instances, as a result of the political and economic status quo. And we should be clear that prior to the Lebanese uprising uh, beginning in October 2019. We did see significant attempts at mobilizations among the Palestinian refugee community in Lebanon amongst domestic migrant workers who have at different times tried to organize themselves and in certain instances also amongst Syrian refugees right and of course Uh, we could talk about many other non-Lebanese communities in Lebanon. So I think it's important to, to first recognize that these are communities with a long history of their own agency, their own political mobilization, and their own patterns of alliance building with different Lebanese groups long before October 2019. That being said, we do have this dynamic in the uprising in Lebanon, where on the one hand, there was a strong contingent of Lebanese protesters that were demanding and insisting that the question of the status, rights, and treatment of non-Lebanese communities in Lebanon need to be part of the demands for the Lebanese uprising, that overturning the system means overturning the exclusion of uh, Palestinians and their seclusion in militarized encampments. It means taking on the kafala system that has allowed for a whole range of abuses of domestic migrant workers in Lebanon from a variety of countries. And of course, to say nothing of the plight of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. On the other hand, there was a strong attempt by the regime in Lebanon to paint the uprising as uh, the result of external parties, of external agitators, and the attempt to paint certain individuals participating in the in the protests as non-Lebanese and therefore proof that uh, this protest is not a genuine expression of the people of Lebanon, but rather a function of foreign Agent provocateurs, so to speak. So there was a difficulty in, I think, non Lebanese people who live in Lebanon finding space, physical space among the protesters, especially when questions of state violence. And the referral of protesters to military courts started to take place. The risks that that exposes non-Lebanese to are far greater than the risks it exposes the Lebanese to. And so I think we had a complicated situation. But there's no doubt that there were Palestinians, Syrians and members of the different domestic worker communities in Lebanon support of participating in one way or another of the protest movement and the uprising in Lebanon. Does that mean everybody of those communities did? No, but not everybody within the Lebanese citizenry did either. So I, I think we need to think about it in those terms.
2: Let's shift to the ruling bloc in Lebanon. What are the forces forming the ruling bloc and what are their main pillars of power?
1: Wow, that is a difficult question. And I should say that, you know, we're fortunate with the case of Lebanon to have an amazing repertoire and group of scholar activists, researchers, analysts who have long helped produce the knowledge that is being used to critique the status quo in Lebanon to identify the types of things that you're asking about. And I want to give them credit for anything correct and good, I say. And take responsibility for anything that they disagree with. So, on the one hand, I think we can think of Lebanon and the political elites in Lebanon as being comprised primarily of the dominant political groups and militias that were left standing at the end of the civil war in Lebanon and that entered into the Taif agreement and the uh, post-war process. And they were able to transform their relative positions within the civil war landscape into relative positions within the post-war landscape and basically transform themselves from militias to political parties, from people who ran particular geographic and institutional fiefdoms in times of war to people who ran geographic and institutional fiefdoms in times of peace, so to speak. So it's not to say that we still have a militia economy in Lebanon. We don't. We, we have a, a peacetime economy, whatever that means. But that most of the pillars within the political establishment are a product of the civil war, either at some point uh, throughout the civil war or at the process that brought the civil war to an end. And so I think that's really important, especially when we think of groups like the Lebanese forces, the Amal movement, Hezbollah, the free patriotic movement, and a number of, of other groups. But of the pillars of power in Lebanon, in terms of these political groups, we would miss an important component with regards to the economic dimensions or let's say the economic foundations. And here I think it's really important to think about the perpetuation of the banking sector throughout the civil war and its merging with some of these political groups and its ability to underpin the post-war reconstruction process. So if if we wanted to think about the current hierarchies of power in Lebanon, I think we would need to think about these uh, dominant political groups. They're not equal amongst each other, but they collectively are able to exclude new political formations from participating in the political process. And I think that's really important. And I think we can think of the intersection between this group and capital holders, in Lebanon, some of which are members and people who were able to generate capital as part of these militias and these political organizations, but others of which have been able to enrich themselves through partnerships and alliance with them. So this is where I would bring in the banking sector. This is where I bring in some of the different merchant groups and, and trading groups in Lebanon set up the kind of relationship between the political and economic nexus of power.
2: The anti-establishment protesters in Lebanon seem to have recognized clear limitations of street protest. Therefore, they initiated other forms of collective action. They blocked roads, staged massive strikes, and shut down schools and universities. Perhaps a lesson learned from their past protests, as well as the uprisings in the region, Can you talk about these actions and their efficacy?
1: I think you've listed them quite uh, effectively. You know, I think past experiences, with the exception of maybe the 2015 garbage protests, largely when it came down to opposition dynamics or attempts to challenge the status quo, largely took the shape of organizing permitted protests and marches and rallies. But I think the spontaneous nature of the uprising in October 17th onward really took the form of informal actions and direct actions such as roadblocks, strikes, and other such activities. And I think the immediate success of these activities in bringing business as usual to a complete stop, I mean, let's be clear, the banks closed for longer during the initial phase of the protests in Lebanon in October and November than they ever had throughout the 15 year civil war in Lebanon. So when we talk about the emergence of new strategies and their efficacy to say no, there will not be business as usual, I think we really have to credit and acknowledge the accomplishments of the protesters. I think part of this is a result of learning But the spontaneous nature of the initial phase of the uprising should caution us against this simply being people who were sitting and studying what happened in Iraq, in Sudan, in Algeria in the recent months and and year around which the Lebanon protests took place or look back to 2011. Absolutely, there were lessons learned from 2011 and lessons learned from 2015, by the way, the garbage protests, including lessons learned from the 2016 attempt to break into different municipal councils around the country in which independents and progressives and leftists try to run for elections in those municipalities. So in terms of efficacy, I think they were quite effective initially. The challenge is that at some point, There was both protester fatigue, combined with the type of violence that the state deployed, and the increasing weight of the economic crises that were taking place in Lebanon, that I think maybe whittled down the numbers of people participating. And so I think one of the long-term discussions that's been going on amongst activist groups in Lebanon is how do we complement the kind of street actions that we are participating in ourselves or supporting or calling for? How do we complement that with a kind of organization building or institutionalization that doesn't immediately lead to de-radicalization, but that can support these kind of protests and build something up from them?
0: You just heard the first part of our interview with Ziad Rish. He's an assistant professor of Middle East History and founding director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies Program at Ohio University. He's also a co-editor of Jadaliya Izin and currently a research fellow at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies in Beirut. He spoke with Shahram Agamir. We'll bring you the second part of this interview next week.